Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we always like to start with the Angelus. Uh, Bishop, do you have any intentions for our Angelus today? Yes, since we're going to be talking about the DREAM Act and our immigrant youth, why don't we offer this up for justice for immigrants, especially for our uh, young people who are immigrants. Very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, Mary full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Father and of the Son, Son and, and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, explains and urges support for the DREAM Act of 2017, new bipartisan legislation that protects undocumented immigrant youth from deportation and also provides them with a path to legalization. Bishop Rhodes then talks about St. Augustine, including his search for truth and ultimate conversion, as well as the role his mother, St. Monica, played. Afterwards, Bishop talks about another inspirational role model in the Catholic faith, St. John the Baptist, a saint who dedicated his life to Christ and eventually was martyred for it. The show wraps up with Bishop Rhodes answering questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, download the Redeemer Radio app to your smartphone or tablet. You can also call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Welcome to Truth and Charity. I am Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes. And you made a a statement recently, uh, last Wednesday I think it came out, about the DREAM Act. Would you maybe fill in some of our listeners that, that aren't familiar with that? Sure. Thank you, Kyle. You know, near the end of July, new bipartisan legislation was introduced in Washington in the Senate and the House of Representatives called the DREAM Act of 2017. So I thought this was really important, an Mm -hmm. issue of moral urgency that I write about in today's Catholic. And of course, a lot of the secular media also picked it up. Basically, I'm urging support for this piece of legislation. Immigrant youth in the United States who came to the United States with their parents and are undocumented, they, they came in illegally. Some of them were just, you know, little, very small children, some maybe one, two, three years old, some a little older. But they're here, and many here in our own diocese. And uh, it's such a struggle for them because there's no path 
to legalization. And that's what the DREAM Act provides for these young people who really weren't responsible for coming into the country themselves, but they're here and and they don't have legal status. So there's a lot of anxiety and fear about um, deportation. DACA, the uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, was helpful in that it, it uh, protected them from deportation. But even that program it could possibly be rescinded. There's 10 states, governors, and attorneys general who have asked the Trump administration to rescind that program, taking away that protection for these young people, which would be awful. But what I like about the DREAM Act is it just it doesn't just protect these youth from deportation. It also gives them a path to permanent legal residency and eventually to citizenship. I know I've met many of these young people here in our own diocese. I mean, they're in our Catholic schools, our colleges, our universities, and without legal documentation, they can't get jobs. Some of them do have trouble even going on to college or university because there's not financial aid available due to their legal status. So, so it's really tough for them. And I, you know, these are wonderful young people. They, you know, I meet them in our parishes and our schools, youth groups. They're active. So many are active in the church. And, you know, we've had a few who, who've been interested in the seminary and, and, mm-hmm. and they can't even do that because of um, their legal status. I mean, it's, we had one seminarian who saw that there was no way to legalization. So he went down to Mexico. He took that risk to apply for a student visa to come back. I knew it was risky. I didn't tell him to do that or not to do that. But when he got down there and they interviewed him for the student visa, he didn't lie Mm -hmm. when they asked him if he had been in the United States. And because of that, he not only did not get the student visa, he was prohibited from entering the United States for 10 years. Wow. So we lost a seminarian. I think it's really an issue of, of justice. It's an issue of human dignity. Um, you know, I meet some after confirmations, parish visits, school visits. My heart goes out to them, it really does. I say, what would I have done if I was in their shoes? You know, it's not their fault. And I hope, you know, I'm glad that the um, the DREAM Act is under bipartisan sponsorship so that it's not just seen as a political issue, but really a moral issue. And it's really a call to compassion to give these young people a chance, a chance to live their lives in dignity and free from the fear of deportation. We need a humane solution and something that's permanent. And that's what the DREAM Act of 2017 would provide. So I really am urging our people to write, to contact our U.S. senators and U.S. House representatives to support the DREAM Act. And let's pray for these young people and for their protection. I did a little bit of research, and it seems like you are, as far as I can tell, the first bishop to speak out in support. Uh, Nobody's spoke out against it, but uh, the first one publicly supporting this bill. Yeah, I don't know if I'm, yeah, I don't know. I know that uh, the USCCB, the U.S. Bishops Conference is, um, they sent something out to us about it. Okay. But I don't know about if any other individual bishops have spoken out yet, but I, I would expect that many will. Yeah. Because the bishops are united on this. Uh-huh. And what about some of the objections that people might have about um, people coming into the United States illegally, which is a criminal activity, that the DREAM Act is somehow uh, 
covering up for this or allowing for illegal activity or maybe even encouraging it? Yeah. Well, I would make a distinction, too, because for adults who come in illegally, it's not a criminal activity. It's a civil thing. So it's so we have to be careful. We can't brand undocumented immigrants as criminals because it's it's a civil offense, not a criminal offense. Okay. So I just make that distinction. But in any case, the young people who came in, they were not, it was, they didn't do so of, of freely. They, right. they were brought here by their parents. Now, that the issue of their parents entering illegally is a whole nother issue. I didn't get into that because that that's more controversial, I would say. I would get into it because I do believe that they still are human beings with rights, human rights. Some of them are fleeing violence. Some mm-hmm. of them are escaping poverty and had a very difficult time supporting their families down in Mexico or Central America or wherever they come from. So that's a whole nother issue we could talk sure. about at, in one of the radio programs. Yeah. But I think this one, to me, is very black and white. And I think some who would say, well, it kind of shows acceptance of illegal immigration. Well, I mean, it's not. These are These are people who are not weren't responsible for coming in right. illegally. They were children. Right. You know, we wouldn't punish children whose parents robbed a bank or something like that. Exactly. I'm not comparing right. illegal immigration to bank robbery, but uh, we wouldn't punish the child for a parent's offense if, if that was an offense. Correct. What about, and I was kind of surprised to see this online, some people responding that the church shouldn't speak out on these issues, that this is not a religious thing and that the, that the, church has no ability to speak out because they're a nonprofit organization how would you respond to that we get all that we get that all the time people <laughs> want to silence the church's voice in the public square as i said this is a moral issue i mean we speak out on all kinds of moral issues social issues that have moral implications whether it be abortion or euthanasia parental choice in education These are issues that we have every right to speak Mm -hmm. out. Um, The nature of marriage, family, all of these things. But the church is always criticized for this. They want us to keep our mouths shut. And then they criticize the church when it doesn't speak out. You know, I mean, it's it's a no-win situation. Should the bishops have been silent in, I'm not comparing this to Nazi Germany, but but I mean, we do have to speak out when there's injustice, right. injustice in any form. I think that's our moral duty. I mean, to keep silent, what am I supposed to do? These young people are part of our church. I'm going to be silent when our young people who are serving mass for me, who are wanting to go into the seminary and study for the priesthood in our diocese, who are active in our parishes, uh, serving at mass, lecturing at mass, you know, doing works of mercy in the community, and they could be deported, and I'm just going to keep silent. No, I won't. I think the DREAM Act has been around since 2001 in some form or another, and it's always been shot down. Do you think that this has a better chance today in its current form? I don't know. Um you know, the political climate is such that it may not, you know, may not pass, but I think we have to make every effort. Yeah. I had hope when I saw that there was a bipartisan effort. Mm-hmm. We definitely need that today. I mean, our country is so polarized politically, and to see 
but at least it was introduced by a Democrat and a Republican uh, co-sponsoring it was, was uh, I think, a very good thing. Yeah. Do you have any idea what kind of numbers we're looking at in this diocese of how many people it would affect? One of the secular news stations asked me that. I really don't because, you know, we don't, we don't know. We don't, when we register people in our parishes, we don't ask their immigration status. So I, I really don't have any ideas. We do have 14 parishes with Hispanic communities in our diocese. And most of these who would be affected by the DREAM Act, at least in our diocese among Catholics, would be Latinos, mm-hmm. you know, from Mexico and Central America primarily. Is there any risk that this would separate the children from their parents? No, I think the risk is there now because, well, it's not going to take away the risk that the parents could still be deported. Uh No, the DREAM Act wouldn't. You know, we need more comprehensive immigration reform for sure. But at least it would prevent the children being deported. It would give them the choice if the children would want to go with the parents or stay here. Right, right. I mean, the way it stands now... You could have these young people deported and their their parents not, mm-hmm. you know. Hmm. I mean, you could have that happen. Interesting. A lot of these young people, they don't, they don't know their countries of origin. For many of them, English is their primary language, not mm-hmm. Spanish. America is their home. The U.S. is their home. Uh, so they would almost be, feel like foreigners if they were deported to back to their countries of birth. All right. Well, before we go, can you, again, give us a call to action here? What can listeners do to help support the DREAM Act of 2017? Well, I always say pray. I always believe in the power of prayer. But I I really think it would be great if our people would would write to our legislators, our U.S. senators and representatives, and encourage them to support the DREAM Act. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll have more conversation with Bishop, and uh, then we'll take questions from you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I am Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes. And last week we talked about, uh, I think it was Jeff asked the question about suffering in the world and this, you know, one of the hard, you mentioned one of the biggest questions that there is. And uh, we have... St. Augustine's feast day was Monday, August 28th, uh, his mom, St. Monica, uh, the day before, and he certainly went through suffering. His was a little bit different because it was kind of self-imposed, a lot of it, that he had kind of made some poor choices and was kind of struggling with some addiction and things like that. So, can you tell us a little bit about his story and his conversion Oh, I'd love to. I mean, Augustine's one of my favorite saints. I remember yeah. as a seminarian, maybe even before seminary, I might have been as a college student reading his confessions. It's a classic, you know. I encourage people, if you want really good spiritual reading, read the confessions of St. Augustine. And certainly he's one of Christianity's greatest converts. Um, and his conversion really came as a result of his search for truth. I mean, he was a passionate seeker of truth. He received from his mother, St. Monica, a Christian education as a child. But then he he lived a pretty dissolute youth. Um, But he always had this attraction to Christ, but he got involved in other philosophies. He did learn from studying, he did a lot of studies in philosophy. He was searching, searching for truth. He kind of came up, you know, the idea that 
uh, that reason, the existence of reason and creative reason. Um, so he kind of progressed with, with philosophy. But then he was struggling so much. He had a child out, out of wedlock. He had a mistress. So he was living a pretty dissolute life. But then he recounts in the confessions, he was kind of tormented by all this. You know, he, and he withdrew to a garden. And he suddenly heard a child's voice chanting a rhyme that he had never heard before. And the rhyme in Latin was tole lege, and it kept repeating, tole lege. It means take and read, hmm. pick up and read. And um, so he picked up the scriptures because he remembered the conversion of St. Anthony, which was something similar, and he fell upon the... Uh, passage of the letter to the Romans where St. Paul exhorted the, the Christians to abandon the works of the flesh hmm. and to be clothed with Christ. That's something that um, really he understood. Those were words addressed to him, to abandon the works of the flesh and to be clothed with Christ. And so that was a decisive moment for him. He went on to uh, to travel to Milan and was uh, he he listened to the uh, the what we'd call the RCIA today the catechetical instructions of the bishop of Milan who was Saint Ambrose so he grew in his faith and he got baptized at the Easter vigil in the year 387 but then his whole life continued to, there was ongoing conversion it wasn't just that once and done there was a continual conversion he grew in Christ and a person who was instrumental in his conversion was his mother. So, and we honor her as a saint, Saint Monica. And we learn about her from Saint Augustine's Confessions. We don't have any other sources of her life except reading Saint Augustine's Confessions. But she was a remarkable woman. She had a pagan husband, Patricius. Later, he converted to Christianity. By the way, also. Hmm. But um, this was her her greatest cross, her greatest suffering was her son Augustine and that he wasn't um, you know converted and she prayed for him she she didn't lose faith she fasted for him she would cry on his behalf and certainly her prayers and her sacrifices paid off she was there when he was baptized by by Ambrose Saint Ambrose in the cathedral in Milan it was the most joyful day of her life and it was on their way back to um, to North Africa, where they were from, that um, she fell ill and and died in Ostia, which is like the port city near Rome. Augustine loved her very much, but she f wasn't afraid to die. She was. Um, her prayers had been answered, and I think she's a great one to ask for, like especially for mothers or fathers, if they have a child who has uh, kind of taken a wrong path in life or left the practice of the faith. Mm -hmm. She's a great intercessor, St. Monica. You mentioned her suffering and watching her son make these poor decisions, and maybe her husband too, I don't know. But there's some similarities, but also some differences in the life of Mary watching her son suffer in a very different way. One is uh, St. Augustine uh, making poor decisions on his own and suffering to watch that. And the other one is seeing your son completely innocent, but suffering on the behalf of somebody else. Can you talk about these two different forms of suffering? You know, I think that 
there's one of the saints, St. Bede or somebody, made that comparison once in their writings about the suffering of Mary and the suffering of Monica. So it's interesting you point that out, Kyle. But yeah, I mean, a mother loves her child, whether their behavior is good or bad. I don't want to say one suffering is more acute than the other, but it's the suffering that comes from love. And um, I mean, we wouldn't suffer in this way if it wasn't for love. It's like when someone that we love dies, you know, we suffer grief, we mourn. I think that's what happens with love. But it's a, a suffering that's, that's redemptive too. It's, it's um, I mean, you think of how Mary united her sorrows with the suffering of her son. She really participated in his suffering for us when she stood for her son when she stood at the foot of the cross i think you could say in a way monica did too i mean she suffered with her son i think that suffering was efficacious it it bore good fruit i guess and that gets that's part of the mystery of suffering that you know we ask some people ask well why does god allow suffering i think good can come out of it god brings good i mean suffering in itself is not good mm-hmm. But suffering united to Christ's suffering is good. It um, contributes uh, to the grace of redemption. Which we hear that, and St. Paul talks about contributing to God's sacrifice in some way. How do we actually do that? How do we actually unite our sufferings to Christ? Is there a magic words that you can say to make your sufferings be united to Christ? Or is it, how does that actually work? I think it's through prayer. I think um, when I've had experiences where I wanted to unite my suffering to that of Jesus, I say that explicitly in my mm. prayer. I think about and meditate on Jesus' suffering. You know, that's something I think good to do when one's experiencing pain. And then to say, Lord, I love you. I unite this. Please, I offer this for the salvation of the world. Or a particular intention, Lord, I offer this for so-and-so who has drifted away from the faith, or I offer this for the poor souls in purgatory. Yeah, we can be very explicit in our prayers. I think that's how we do it. And that also means a certain acceptance with patience of you know, the suffering that we're, we're going through. That doesn't mean we can't pray for healing or something like that. I mean, that's, that's fine, that's good. But at the same time, we should, with the suffering that we endure at the present, it, it has meaning then. It has, it has a purpose, mm-hmm. and that purpose is salvation. Well, speaking of suffering, yesterday we had the Feast of the Passion of St. John the Baptist. So he gets his own feast day for being born and for another feast day for his death. Can you tell us a little bit about St. John the Baptist? Well, the great forerunner of Jesus, the the precursor of the Lord. I think it is interesting that we celebrate his birth in June, and then we celebrate his martyrdom in August. And um, that's unusual that you have two feasts for uh-huh. a saint. But I think it shows how great he is. Remember yeah. Jesus' words that there's no one 
born of woman greater than John the Baptist. He, all, he taught, as we know, this message of repentance, this message of conversion, which is what we've been talking about. His baptism that he did in the Jordan River was a baptism of repentance. It wasn't the sacrament of baptism. And then also, besides that message of conversion, he's the one who pointed to Jesus and recognized him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would not keep silent about the truth he could have kept his mouth shut about uh, Herod's marriage, etc. But no, he he had that courage to to um, bear witness to Christ, and the truth is the truth. He wouldn't compromise, and it led to his martyrdom. I think he's an example for us. You know, there's a martyrdom in being faithful every day to the gospel. Christian life demands it. That courage. Um, you know, and of course, prayer is so important so that we have the courage to, to live our faith, even if it means suffering for it, like John the Baptist did. But I think he's, um, yeah, he's a great saint. We have a number of parishes in our diocese named for St. John the Baptist. There's more mm-hmm. I could say about him, you know, his conception, his birth, just so many neat things about him. But I think he's also a good model for us priests because, you know, he knew it wasn't all about him. He had that humility. Some thought he was the Messiah, and he made it clear that he wasn't even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. So I like that. He always pointed to Jesus. He didn't point to himself. It wasn't about him. So I think that's important for us priests to realize, you know, our ministry is always to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves. All right. Well, there's so much more I feel like we could talk about on either of these characters or on the topic of suffering, but maybe we'll have to come back to this in the future. Uh, But coming up, we're going to take questions that you've submitted. If you want to submit questions, you can do that at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can listen to past episodes of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. You can also call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-436. 9598 and submit your questions that way. Again, that's 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I am Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes, and it's time that we ask some of the questions submitted by listeners. Our first question is submitted by a listener who says, is it okay to disagree with the Pope? It depends on what you're disagreeing <laughs> on. Um, I, I would say it's not automatically wrong or sinful to question or 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 disagree with, with something the Pope says, unless it's something of faith and morals. When you think about papal infallibility, it doesn't mean that everything a Pope says is perfect or anything everything a Pope does is perfect. But... The gift of papal infallibility means that the Pope is prevented by the help of the Holy Spirit from making mistakes when officially proclaiming a doctrine of faith Mm -hmm. or morals. Sometimes people will disagree with something the Pope says, uh, maybe his style. But also remember, the Pope speaks on many different levels. I mean, what what he says in an encyclical, for example, has more weight than, let's say, something he does in an off-the-cuff homily or remark Mm -hmm. on an airplane. Um, So you have to kind of look at the different levels of papal teaching. But all the time, I think, is we owe 
a high level of respect and obedience to the Pope. He is the vicar of Christ. He's the visible head of the church on earth. So even though we may not agree with everything the Pope says or, or does, we can't just dismiss it as just one opinion among among many. Uh-huh. I mean, he's the successor of St. Peter. We, and if it's a matter that's not a of faith and morals, but just a prudential judgment about something, at the very least, we should give him the benefit of the doubt. We should give him respect. What's really problematic is when people, especially Catholics, who constantly criticize the Pope and his actions and his teachings, I think that really can be a sin against charity, no matter who the Pope is. You know, I think... um, should always have that um, that virtue of charity. Have you disagreed with the Pope? I mean, there's probably some times where which Pope? Any of the Popes? Sure. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, I mean, not not anything serious. Not on any. I mean, I love our Popes. That you know, in my lifetime. I mean, I love John Paul. I love Benedict. I love Pope Francis. But sometimes they might say something or do something. Oh, I wish he didn't do that or say that. Sure. You know. But they've they've been minor things, really. But I've always had respect, you know. Um, I think we've been blessed with great popes, holy popes. And I think probably it's worth mentioning, too, that uh, you should always go and make sure that you're reading the pope's actual words and not some media spin that was put on them and make sure that you're actually hearing what the pope actually said. Exactly. And also read it in context. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. All right. Well, Lucas Weber from St. Charles, Fort Wayne, asks... What is a plenary indulgence? Oh, that's a good question. People sometimes ask this question because they hear about it. They hear about plenary indulgences or partial indulgences. Well, an indulgence is either a full or a partial remission of the temporal punishment that's due to sin. It means that by the merits of Jesus Christ, you know, by Christ's grace, the merits of his death and resurrection, and also the merits of Mary and the saints, a plenary indulgence is the full plenary, full remission of the temporal punishments that's, that, that are the punishments that are due to sins. Now, these are sins that are already forgiven, sacramentally forgiven sins, but the punishments for those sins can remain. A partial indulgence means just that a portion of the temporal punishment due to forgiven sin is remitted. We attach indulgences to certain prayers or certain good works that people can offer to gain an indulgence. You mentioned temporal punishment from sin. Can you explain that? And is that is there a different kind of punishment from sin that's not temporal? Yeah, I mean, the temporal punishment is, you know, temporal has to do with... Um, with time, you know, the whole world temporal, these, these are things that happen in time, basically in this world, the consequences of sin, basically. Uh-huh. And sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's social consequences of sin, but they disturb our life. They disturb the right order of our relationships with others and with the world, with society. Sin has basically has this ripple effect, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's what we, we mean when we talk about the, the punishments, so that we can be sorry and we can be forgiven, which happens, for example, in the sacrament of penance, but that doesn't take away 
the negative effects. Mm-hmm. So temporal punishment is is different from eternal punishment. The punishment that, let's say, if a person dies in a state of mortal sin, that's that's eternal punishment. Um, yes. That is not uh, taken away by indulgences. And does an indulgence always require that you go to confession as part of obtaining the indulgence? Because you, you mentioned that it is for the removal of this temporal punishment from sin of sins that are already forgiven, and that would have been forgiven at the confession? That's right. Is that always a part of the the indulgence, or is that only sometimes necessary? No, it's always necessary that one, um, for a plenary indulgence, one, one has to go to confession and also receive Holy Communion. That's in addition to the prayer or the action that to which the indulgence is attached. And I know sometimes this would be with going on a pilgrimage, or uh, sometimes there's special masses or something that will have a plenary That's indulgence correct. attached to it. Is and there the, a list of yeah, where you can get all of these? There's a handbook okay. of indulgences called the Enchiridion of Indulgences, and there it'll show you certain prayers where you can get a partial indulgence or things where you can get a um, a plenary indulgence. The bishop also has the authority to have three events a year where the plenary indulgence is given. And I sometimes forget to do that, but I have done it here, for example, during the Jubilee Year of Mercy and at mm-hmm. other times where I've designated a certain event that if people came to and under the normal conditions, confession, sacramental communion, etc., they would receive an indulgence. Okay. Are there some that you can do on in the own. privacy on your, oh, yeah. your own home? Yeah. I mean, for example, the rosary. You uh-huh. can get a partial indulgence for praying the rosary. Huh. All right. Well, Pat from Precious Blood Parish in Fort Wayne had the following questions. What is appropriate dress for mass and are shorts okay for ushers and ministers? Oh, that's a question that's that's a hot potato. The catechism talks about the importance of respect when we attend the liturgy and that bodily demeanor, gestures, and clothing. So, you know, it's related to the whole virtue of modesty, mm-hmm. decency. So, I think that should inspire one's choice of clothing when one's going to Mass. One should dress modestly. But here's where the opinions differ. Yeah. You know, sometimes different cultures have different ideas of of what's appropriate, what's modest. There's some people who would be more strict on this and other people who would be more lax. Some who are more strict, they feel that... Um, that you know this is different from going to the mall mm-hmm. and it is this is a sacred event we're going to the eucharistic liturgy on the other side would be those who don't want to discourage anybody from coming to church so they they take a more lax attitude saying clothing can be whatever i think the middle ground is probably good in the sense that um, standards vary from culture to culture from place to place but i think you know, we should always keep in mind it, it should be respectful attire. You know, if you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the Vatican insists that people who, before they enter, if they're going to be allowed to enter St. Mm-hmm. Peter's, that they follow a certain dress code. Men or women with shorts are routinely turned away, that you have to have long pants mm-hmm. or, you know, a woman a dress and not a mini skirt. Right. Bare shoulders aren't allowed. Like you can't wear a tank top and go into St. Peter's Basilica. Mm-hmm. 
I think those are reasonable expectations. I think also if one is going to be on the altar in the sanctuary as a lector, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, I think should be dressed very respectively. Mm-hmm. I don't think people should be wearing shorts or sleeveless shirts or something if they're distributing Holy Communion or serving at Mass. And ultimately, we are responsible for ourselves, so we can make that extra effort ourselves, but maybe not pass judgment on others who we don't know their circumstance walking in the door, and maybe it's just a, a huge step that they came, and, and we should welcome them, and maybe eventually we'll get the opportunity to talk to them about apparel. Exactly. I mean, I agree with you. You could have someone maybe who's walking down the street and they're having all kinds of terrible problems in their life and they come in and they're not dressed appropriately, but they come in to say a prayer. Can you imagine coming up to them and saying something that could really hurt a person? You know, so I like what you just said, Kyle. You know, I think we should not be pointing at others, but just trying to be careful about how we dress. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If you have questions, you can call or text them to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598, or you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, where you can also listen to past episodes of the show. And we'll have more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking questions that you've submitted for our bishop. And the next one comes from Jerry Zempt from St. Charles, Fort Wayne, who says, Is it okay for a Catholic to watch the HBO series Game of Thrones? I've never seen it, but know many who watch it. Jerry, I'm so sorry, but I've never watched it either. I've heard of it, but I don't, I don't know anything about it. I'll have to check it out. Any rules of thumb on what's appropriate or inappropriate for us to be watching? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we should be watching things that are that glorify violence or sex or use a lot of bad language, etc. I think we have to be careful. Look at some good Catholic reviews regarding movies and TVs can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Michelle from Queen of Peace, Mishawaka, said, When we attend Mass in a special location, like outside a, in a, or a grotto, what are we supposed to do when we can't kneel during the consecration? Stand, sit, try to kneel anyway? I would say either stand or kneel during the Eucharistic prayer. You don't have to kneel, but sometimes I've been in those situations, like when I would be at St. Peter's or something, I would just kneel on the, on the ground, but that's not required. Standing is a, in such a situation would be fine. I don't think it would be appropriate to sit unless, of course, one is physically unable. Mm-hmm. Is it required that churches in the diocese have kneelers? Yes, we have that. That's required of all of our churches in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. One of the books that you've brought to reference is a compendium. Can you tell us a little bit about the compendium? Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I highly recommend it. You know, Catholic social teaching, they speak of it sometimes as the best kept secret in the church. Uh Uh, A lot of people, I mean, we've been doing a lot in our diocese to kind of promote knowledge of, of the social doctrine of the church. 
the social encyclicals of the popes, etc., going all the way back to Pope Leo XIII and Rerum Novarum. But sometimes you think, okay, where can I find out? What does the church teach about war? Or what does the church teach about poverty? Mm-hmm. Well, this is the, the book I would recommend for everybody because it's the best. It's called The Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. And it came out... Oh, I can't remember what year. I want to say 13, 14 years ago, maybe, okay. from the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. So I often will refer to it because, especially if questions come up about different aspects of Catholic social teaching, the question of you know different things that come up in politics, mm-hmm. um, maybe questions about the economy. You know, the church has such a rich body of social teaching things about the dignity of work and the rights of workers. You know, we do have uh, courses, classes in Catholic social teaching in all of our Catholic high schools. I hope we have more for adults, too. Adult, sure. Some parishes do have uh, classes, et cetera, in Catholic social teaching. Uh, I really encourage it. Also, the whole issue of the environment and care of creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this came out before Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, I encourage our people not to learn what the church teaches just from the general media, but really look at the real, the, the, the true source. Yeah. So once again, this is the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, social doctrine. compendium of the social doctrine of the church. It was printed by the Vatican book, uh, whatever it's called, Libraria Editrice Vaticana. It's kind of like the Vatican bookstore, okay. but you can get it in the United States. It's, it's, um, sold also by the USCCB Publishing. And I presume we probably have it in our own Catholic bookstore. Okay. All right. Somebody asked the question, what does INRI at the top of the cross mean? Is it Latin? Yes, it is Latin. stands for Jesus Rex Judeorum, which translated into English is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. If you remember... Those, that's the, those are the Latin words, the title that Pontius Pilate had written over the head of Jesus on the cross. And did so I and RI are the initials, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum. And then Pontius Pilate had it in multiple languages? Yes. Right. Um, and he had it written in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. Huh. And that's why I N R I is the Latin. Yeah. What about IHS? We see that some places. Yeah, that's the first three letters in of Jesus in Latin, Jesus. I, by the way, is is used in Latin instead of the English J. Huh. So the letter J in English is an I in Latin. So it's Jesus would be I E S U S in Latin. So right. I H S. The H is really the capital. Uh, is, is is the capital letter in Latin for E. Huh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know this is complicated. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for joining us again for another episode of Truth and Charity and for answering questions, uh, not only that I had, but also listeners. A reminder that people can submit those at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or you can call or text the Holy Cross text line at 260 260- Four three six nine five nine eight, And Bishop, could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. 
May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Join us every Wednesday at noon for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes with a special encore presentation on Saturdays at 11 a.m. On the next show, Bishop Rhodes will talk about St. Teresa of Calcutta. Bishop shares his experiences with her and the highlights of her humble life. Then he'll talk about the charitable works of the Catholic Church. Afterwards, it's on to listener-submitted questions, including advice on handling finances and saints of the Old Testament. If you would like to ask Bishop Rhodes a question for him to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can find previous episodes. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program. <laughs>